0: Well, good evening, and uh, welcome to Geoffrey Sachs's lecture about his new book, Commonwealth Economics for a Crowded Planet. I was sitting at breakfast this morning, finishing Geoffrey's book, and reading, a of, <laughs> and reading a number of articles about him. What is striking about him, I think, is not only is he a distinguished economist, of course, and renowned within the academic community. But his work appeals to a much wider audience as well, and he's known in many quarters around the world. A number of the internet articles I downloaded about him all said he was now a household name. So on leaving the house, I thought I would lightheartedly test this claim. And so I turned to my five-year-old and asked him if he'd heard of Jeffrey Sachs. And he responded by saying that he wasn't sure, but he thought he was at his school. I, re- I then asked the proverbial London cab driver if he'd heard of him and he said he thought he had but he wasn't sure what team he played for <laughs> Saks, he said um, but we were sure it wasn't Liverpool or Chelsea and getting closer to home at a food cure earlier at lunchtime I asked a student if she knew of course of Jeffrey Sachs, and there we got it she said of course, that cool economist <laughs> and indeed he is Jeffrey Sachs is currently, as you all probably know, Director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University and Professor of Sustainable Development. He's the author of numerous books and publications, among the best known perhaps being The End of Poverty, which became a global bestseller. He's internationally renowned as also as an economic advisor to governments and he's worked in Latin America, Eastern Europe, Africa, Asia, among other places. And, of course, he was also appointed Special Advisor to the United Nations Secretary-General and has worked for some time time now on the United Nations Millennium Development Goals. In 2005, he gave the Distinguished Reef Lectures, but he's also, of course, a regular contributor to the media, diverse forms of media right across the world. His new book, which we're going to, of course, discuss and think about this evening, asks some very serious questions. Can we find a global course which enables the world to benefit from the spread of poverty while ensuring that we don't destroy the ecosystems around us? How do we go forward together, benefiting from our increasing technological capacities while avoiding the dangers of climate change, famines, violent conflict, population explosions, and worldwide pandemic diseases? How do we steer global politics in an age where global problems threaten to overrun us and where there are too many hands, or seem to be too many hands often, on the steering wheel? Well, we all look forward to um, engaging with you on these questions this evening. Just the state of play is that Geoffrey will speak for about 50 minutes to an hour. There will then be uh, half an hour or so for questions. And then you'll have the opportunity uh, to buy his new book, which will be on sale out there. And you'll be able to file out there. And Jeffrey will be here for over half an hour to, to uh, sign the book And uh, uh, and to see you uh, for um, a short time. So please join with me in giving him a very warm LSE welcome.
1: Oops, let's try that. I love this room, by the way, uh, and uh, gave uh, the Lionel Robbins lectures here uh, 17, 16 years ago. Uh, it was a thrill for me then, uh, three evenings in a row, and every time I've come back, it's an absolute thrill to have a chance to be at LSE. It is uh, certainly one of the most vibrant, if not the most vibrant uh, places for discussing these issues on the whole planet. And this is kind of the epicenter for it for me. So it's a, an enormous delight. Uh, maybe I was at your son's school the other day. Uh, I've, I've been in a lot of schools recently. Uh, but uh, it is uh, good to be with you to talk about some serious issues and to lay out a, kind of approach which I favor on these issues, which a lot of people find puzzling, naive, uh, wrong-headed, and so forth, so we can take on a good a good discussion. Usually the criticism is naive, uh, though I heard a lot worse in a couple of reviews uh, in the last couple of days. And I want to explain uh, why uh, I... Uh, believe in the kind of problem solving that I do and talk about this in the context of the main challenges that I think we confront, uh, challenges that I summarize as living on a very crowded planet. So the book is uh, about the economics of a crowded planet, Uh, although one review said there's no economics in it also. Uh, This, to me, seems an odd misunderstanding about economics although it may be a commentary about academic economics uh, in in some cases i believe that we can solve some very big problems and that it's not naive to think so and not naive to try to lay out pathways critical pathways of solutions even to big problems I believe it's not wrong-headed to have a book that discusses population, climate change, and poverty all under one cover, Uh, though to avoid an 18-volume tract, these subjects are necessarily going to be treated to a little bit less depth than each subject requires. I think that trying to understand how things can unfold, not trying to make forecasts, is extremely important. So this is a book that's a bit didactic. It says, here are the things that can happen very badly, but there actually are ways. We're not going to sing together. Thank you. There, the, Here are ways that things can happen much better, and the world is not self-organizing in terms of solutions. We're going to have to choose solutions. That also seems to many people an incredibly naive idea that one can actually choose to do things. In fact, not only choose, but choose globally, because I'm talking about getting common actions across a large number of governments, civil society institutions, organizations, businesses, and the like, to coalesce around particular ideas. I don't think it's naive to do this, and I will try to explain why. But I also believe that the alternatives are very dire. And when one puts forward ideas about problem solving, you generally get shot at for uh, being wrong in one way or another, which is okay. But I believe that it is incumbent upon anybody doing the shooting to put forward alternative ideas. If it's pure negativism, we're not getting very far. This book seems also to rankle people because it doesn't cast blame. So I actually don't see the climate problem, for example, as a matter of immorality of rich countries. I don't see the globalization problem as a matter of immorality of large companies. I don't believe the idea that globalization is... Uh, somehow uh, drastically off course because of the behavior of multinationals, a very helpful idea. I don't think particularly that the idea that greed is somehow the essence of the problem is a very helpful view of this. Indeed, The whole book is written around a basic idea of economics, actually one of Lionel Robbins' uh, ideas, among others, which is that if something's wrong with the current situation deeply, uh, then probably there's a better way to do this that doesn't simply require pain for some for gain for the others. That kind of change, to my mind, is much less interesting than the kinds of Gains that we can have to create more uh, well being on a broad base. In other words, if the situation is uh, a situation of, in some sense, either intragenerationally or internationally or intergenerationally inefficient outcomes, which I believe it is profoundly, then there's a way to help all parts of the world even the current and future generations, to be better off through better choices. That's what public economics is really about. Sometimes it may involve side payments and transfers to help compensate those who take particular actions uh, to help uh, others. I don't really see the challenges we face as us-against-them challenges. If they are us-versus-them challenges, we're also in a hell of a lot more trouble than us. I think, because if our real challenges on the planet are just deeply held conflictual interests that at the core are who's going to win and who's going to lose, we'll fight about that to the end. But if the challenges are really how do we do things better to find our way through problems where better is defined as economists would define it as improvements in efficiency, either within time or across time, so that broad parts of the world can be made better off, then we have a lot more hope. And I tend to see the problems in that way. We tend to discuss the problems in a quite different way. Who's going to pay, and who's going to win, and who's going to lose? And we tend to focus on these challenges as challenges of interests. And we tend to... Think of uh, problems of, uh, it's basically problems of transfers. Why should the current generation give up for the sake of the future generation? Why should the rich give up for the sake of the poor? And so on. If those are the true essences of our problems, we're in for a hell of a ride, which some people believe. But the reason I don't believe that, actually, is that when you look closely At these problems, and that's the gist of the argument of the book. When you look closely at problems like climate change, food production, population increase, extreme poverty, the problem is not the overwhelming costs of solutions. The problem is not the lack of better approaches. The problems are organizational and cooperation problems. So they are real problems of design, of mechanisms, approaches, and so on. But the overwhelming problem with climate change is not that we need 10% of our income, much less 50% of our income to address this problem. The problem is it's complex, involves all sectors of the economy in all countries. It will stretch over many years in an environment of scientific uncertainty. And so there are huge problems of incentives, of design, of cooperation, but not fundamental problems of breaking the bank to address the issues. The same is true with extreme poverty. We've fought for decades over one of the least interesting questions, in my opinion, on the planet, which is whether rich countries should give 0.7 of 1% of their income to help poor people. The rich countries have gone overboard, and a lot of academics have spent a lifetime arguing why that's a terrible idea rather than ever trying it. And we're talking about something less than 1% of the income of people unimaginably rich by any standard except perhaps their own in comparison with a neighbor who's a little richer. So I think that the problem is framing these challenges properly taking the fear and the conflict out of them, taking the blame out of them, and trying to address them and understand them mechanistically. And by that, I mean understanding underlying physical processes, understand them technologically, by which I mean understanding potential ways to address them, and understanding them in a kind of public economics manner, which is how can one design a set of institutions and mechanisms that respect the underlying dynamics of the issue and the challenge in a way to make people better off. If you're really interested in redistribution for redistribution's sake, because some are undeserving and some are deserving, it's a different subject. Have fun. It's real tough. Because even when it's just a matter of helping to find a way to improve people's well-being where there really is a joint improvement, that's hard enough in our noisy world, which poorly frames issues, which uh, views things seemingly intrinsically as us-versus-them problems, which is more comfortable in a blame environment, and which therefore, in my view, misses innumerable opportunities to get things done. Also, as I'll emphasize, I'm spoiled because I've seen a lot of good things happen that were deemed to be impossible to happen. And I've seen actual cooperative approaches to solve problems that work. So I believe that it's possible and that it's not naive and that you don't have to have uh, an air of profound cynicism and pessimism to be sophisticated. You can actually be sophisticated by saying there's a way to solve a problem. And to solve a problem doesn't necessarily mean a hugely complex way to solve a problem either. Sometimes more simple things work. And a lot of life is like that successfully. And I've seen a lot of such things happen with my own eyes and advocated them been told they're impossible later on seeing them happen and then heard later on, but of course they were obvious and inevitable. And that's the life cycle of good ideas, from impossible to inevitable. And that can happen with so many of the things we're grappling with. So what is this book about? It's a, bo- it's a book about our unique challenge of this time and this generation in a way that has never been faced before of a planet that is so crowded that not only are we in each other's faces as never before and interconnected in the flow of all bads that one can think of whether it's pathogens or terror or mass unwanted migration but we're also in the face of the Earth's ecosystems in ways that, as frightening as you think they are, spend 10 minutes with a serious scientist in hydrology or agronomy or climate, and one finds that they're even worse than we think, because the science is probably 10 or 15 years ahead of the public discourse and three or four or five years ahead of the policy discourse at least in terms of the underlying mechanisms that are at play in the planet. So the sense in which we're a crowded planet is arithmetic. We're 6.7 billion people on the planet. That's roughly 10 times more than at the start of the industrial age. And we're now at $10,000 output per person on average, measured in purchasing power parity terms. So that's about 67 rounded up to $70 trillion of annual output. It's two orders of magnitude greater than at the start of the industrial era, though you can't really make comparisons despite the heroism of Angus Madison and other macro historians to make comparisons over two centuries. We can only say roughly we've never been at a scale like this before in resource use, economic throughput, and material well-being on average. It's absolutely silly to have a view in this context that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, because it's obviously far more complicated than that. Lots of the poor are getting a lot richer, and it just takes looking at India and China in the last 30 years to recognize that. And I would argue that globalization is a extraordinarily powerful and I would even say necessary condition for that kind of economic progress. And I would also say, by the way, that multinational companies are to a very large extent perhaps the most powerful conduit for the economic uh, growth in Asia because they've been the channels by which technology has spread and those cham- technology diffusion is the essence of the catching up growth that is part and parcel of China growing 10% per year or India growing 7% per year. I view the problem like the old children's pu- child's puzzle, which is the first introduction to what geometric growth is, because we're experiencing geometric growth, of course. And the child's puzzle is about the pond with a lily pad on it uh, that starts out with one lily pad, and the child's told that the lily pad doubles uh, in area, doubles uh, its its number every day, and on the 30th day, the pond exactly fills the cover. Uh, The the lily pads exactly fill the the, uh, surface of the pond, and the child's asked, when was the pond half-covered? And the first answer always is on the 15th day. And then you explain, no, it was yesterday. It was the 29th day because that's what geometric growth is. So it took one last day to fill the pond. I think the earth is on the 29th day in this sense. We have a whole profession almost devoted to bashing Thomas Malthus Uh, that uh, we can always keep up with anything, with population, with environmental challenges, and so forth. And there's a 200-year history of having some success in that, though nowhere near as uniform a success as is believed. But I think that it is not wrong to say that another couple of doublings of world income, and we've got some very, very serious trouble under current technologies – So in what sense is this true? What's wrong with the $70 trillion of output? First, let me emphasize again, on the whole, it's quite wonderful if you happen to be a development economist or if you happen to be the child of a peasant farmer in China who's now grown up in a completely different world with a better diet, longer life expectancy, and prospects for considerably higher income. The extent of poverty in the world Extreme poverty has gone down from 90-plus percent at the start of the industrial age when everybody was poor, including the rich, who were also poor. By standards we would recognize, they died young, they suffered uh, in famines, and uh, they certainly didn't have access to clean drinking water. And now we have at least, I would say, uh, 80% of the world out of extreme poverty, and arguably 85 to 90%. So that's real material progress. I will not speak about spiritual progress right now. And quite seriously, I'm just staying on the material side because I think that counts for a lot. And it seems to count for what people want also. And I think as a good utilitarian, uh, or as a utilitarian, good or not, Uh, I believe uh, that's what we ought to uh, to validate to uh, the first instance. Okay, so what's wrong? What's wrong are basically two things. One is just the footnote, that there are 15% that aren't part of that right now. 15% of 6.7 billion people turns out to be a lot of people. It's a billion people. And so there are a billion people that are struggling every day to survive. I would call that an anachronism in the 21st century, as well as a tragedy, as well as a solvable problem. And that's what I wrote a book about three years ago, about how that can be ended because I view that as an anachronism, that in our time, with our technological prowess for everything that counts, Not solving every problem, but everything that counts, whether it's farming or basic infrastructure or connectivity or schools or clinics and so on. It's absolutely absurd that a billion people fight daily for survival. And in my view, a huge mistake, as well as every uh, moral term you might want to use, but a mistake that 10 million children die of their poverty every year. This is to nobody's... Advantage. second challenge is, I think, increasingly well-recognized but not fully appreciated. That's the 29th day challenge. That $70 trillion of throughput is actually a lot. And old ideas, mainly scorned in conventional neoclassical economics, but I think correct, like carrying capacity, are under phenomenal strain right now. The second book I read in economics as a student in 1972 was Limits to Growth. It was assigned to make fun of it, by the way, literally. It was assigned to say that's not how really society works. There are no prices in uh, that MIT model. And without prices, you can't get efficient allocation. And the authors didn't know that if something becomes scarce, its price will rise. And and, uh, therefore, this is an incorrect book. I went on to learn as a graduate student that uh, economic growth comes from labor and capital and technology and that the capital is produced by output. And the output is produced by capital and labor in a circular, uh, circular process that actually doesn't have nature anywhere in it. So we're literally trained, partly in the service of getting a first-order differential equation, uh, and a uh, rather than something more complicated. We're trained actually from the beginning, even till today, to keep the physical challenges outside of even the basic vision of economic growth. I think that we're at the end of the line of being able to do that. From a technical point of view, that is actually a clever assumption. If the natural capital or the ecological resources or the raw materials reliably can be obtained at a fixed marginal cost relative to output because then there's an aggregation theorem that says even though they're important, they're available at a fixed price and therefore you don't have to take them into account. And so you could simplify a formal model and actually drop out a critical factor of production that's really there because it's there in a perfectly elastic way at a fixed price. But I think that's not the case. We actually have a limited capacity of the air to hold carbon dioxide, for example. That's important. We have a limited capacity of groundwater aquifers to deliver water to the people in the Gangetic Plain or the North China Plain. That's important because that's 500 million people. We have a limited amount of glacier melt which will disappear in 30 or 40 years in the Andean region, and in parts of the Himalayas, which actually provide a lot of water right now. Now, the technical economic theorem says you can forget about all of that if water or fossil fuels or uh, other uh, things are available at a low and fixed cost. And what I would argue, as I want to develop the, the point, that that's not true with our current technologies. With our current technologies, with what we know how to do, we don't know how right now to beat the physical limits. At the same time, however, I believe that we could figure out how because we have within reach, I think, some very clear discernible pathways that could help to Control at a global scale some of these challenges. So I'm not a pessimist, but I have one more step of the argument, which is that unlike the traditional neoclassical model where uh, growth is uh, is, uh, led by an exogenous force of technical change, or the endogenous growth models where technical change is basically driven by a short-term patent Uh, which gives a temporary monopoly return and therefore an incentive to innovate. In fact, that's neither is an adequate description of how technology will need to unfold, nor is either an adequate description of what we will need to do to develop approaches that at a global scale produce these still uncertain technologies and diffuse them adequately to be able to face the challenges that we're facing. So in the end, I come down to a somewhat optimistic view of our potential to solve these problems, and I put a huge focus on technology as the intermediating step. But I also know that what public economics rightly teaches is that technology doesn't come out of uh, thin air, and things like intellectual property rights are hugely imperfect instruments for developing technologies, especially technologies that we know we need in short periods of time. Let me define this a little bit more precisely, because also I think a big part of our problem in a disciplinary approach is that we define things abstractly. We don't talk about specific problems. That's viewed as kind of a special case, but not for a serious journal. But that's not how real science proceeds, although it is how social science acts. An economist would say, I will assume a production function now with the natural resource R. A scientist would say, let me focus on this specific protein and spend 15 years doing it. And wouldn't say, okay, I'm going to write a biology paper. I assume N proteins, subscript I. There's nothing like that in any science, actually, except economics. Where we don't talk about actual processes and mechanisms, we talk about generalities. Because there's this drive for generalization. Thinking that that's the model of science. But if you read nature every week, It's not at all the model of science. The model of science is to the most detailed mechanism, not the generality, but the most detailed mechanism. The physicist doesn't say, I assume N forces, that are functions of M1, M2, and D in some way, and we'll leave (laughs) open a general general production function for a force field, because we don't want to get too specific. But that's what we do in economics. So I'd like actually to talk about carbon. I'd like to talk about water. I'd like to talk about specific ecosystems and how the problems can be solved. And actually, I'd like our top journals to publish articles in the nitty-gritty of the economics of malaria control, not let us assume a disease D with a transmission rate according to a logistic function. And now we'll do some kind of optimal control, and it generalizes across six types of diseases that have completely different epidemiological profiles. The world actually has some specific diseases that need to be confronted. So the problem is the following. $70 trillion, 6.7 billion people, and the main problems, I would say, are three, to grossly simplify One is how we get our energy, second is how we get our food, and third is how we transform material products. And each of these is putting such a weight on ecosystems right now that they are at the breaking point. So we're having massive species extinctions, amphibians disappearing, pollinators disappearing, rivers not running to the sea, and many, many other problems that are specific, detailed, and where there are so many anthropogenic forcings right now, we don't actually know what's causing the harms. It's probably a synergistic effect of multiple factors all operating in an adverse direction. We are dominating the carbon cycle right now. Of course, we've raised the carbon concentration from 280 parts per million to 385 parts per million from 1,800 till today from the pre-industrial level till today. And that is the essence of about 80% of the climate change problem. There is also methane and nitrous oxide, both of which are heavily related to our food production systems. But we've got a massive energy challenge, both availability of traditional energies because we're roughly three-fourths to four-fifths fossil fuel based for our uh, non-traditional biomass use. And we're running out of conventional fossil fuels, and it's not really important whether it's next year or in five years or in 30 years. From the point of view of our well-being and survival, that's all the same. It's a short period of time for oil, at least. Within the half century, there'll be a peak. And probably within the next 20 years, and possibly already now, who knows? Nobody knows for sure. But there are good arguments that it's close and close in terms of civilizational time period because even if it's, oh, thank God, we got 40 years left. That's actually not good when we're talking not at the scale of a little community but at the world. Because this time it's about the world. It's not about Easter Island or about the Greenland colony. It's about the whole world. So that changes, I think, the perspective on this. So carbon cycle. And that means that even if we could find the fossil fuels, we cannot use them the same way as we're using them right now. We emitted last year roughly 30 billion tons of carbon dioxide. The number is rising. The rate of increase of uh, carbon concentrations went from about two parts per million at the beginning of this decade to 2.4 parts per million last year. So we have an accelerating rise just as one would expect in a growing world economy. We've taken over the nitrogen cycle, because now humans fix more nitrogen through nitrogen-based fertilizers than the entire biota uh, of of, uh, nitrogen-fixing bacteria, and lightning and other physical processes fix nitrogen. And the world went on for 4.5 billion years with natural nitrogen fixation, And then Haber and Bosch discovered how to do it uh, artificially in uh, 1908 to 1914. And now we do more of it than the world natural systems. And the implications of this on the one side is that's how we feed 6.7 billion people, at least a lot of them, because we don't feed all of them adequately. It's how we feed 5.7 billion people, which is a wonderful achievement. But... It's also destroying every major estuary right now where watersheds collect the runoff of nitrogen-based fertilizers, accumulate and aggregate them, and then lead to algal blooms, hypoxia, uh, and uh, massive dead zones like the spreading perhaps 250 miles now in the Gulf of Mexico. And these estuaries are of profound economic value as well as more general ecosystem value because they're hugely productive, crucial ecosystems that link the marine environment with the freshwater environment in unique ways. And that's where the runoff occurs in the mouths of the world's major rivers, not to mention leaching into aquifers and, and other things in a more local manner. We are destroying habitat, as everybody knows. Now we're doing it in the tropical forest, but that's only because the temperate forest came down in the last 2,000 years. There's nothing special about deforestation except that the temperate world got to it much earlier. Now the tropical world is following a long line, partly through local needs and partly through uh, international demands. And you could clear-cut Borneo and Papua New Guinea and other places of unique biodiversity, and plant it to palm oil and make a fortune with the entire island. There's no limit in world demand for this stuff right now. So don't think that purely capturing ecosystem services in a commercial way is going to save these ecosystems at all. Because there's actually more valuable things in a purely commercial way to do it if we don't care about other species and uh, more generally these ecosystem functions. So habitat is under tremendous assault. Overfishing, as everybody knows, has now either gutted or endangered every major fishery in the world because we went up to 100 million tons of marine catch, and that was well above the sustainable levels. And our technology is so good that with satellite reading and GPS, you can find where the fish are anywhere. And then you can cast nets that are several kilometers long, and you can just completely clear up the ocean in a large area through our powerful fishing technologies. Or you can drag massive trawl lines on ocean bottoms and destroy about three billion years of uh, evolution overnight with unique ecosystems, and we're doing that all over the world right now. By the way, to grow, to capture fish that was not even on the menu 10 years ago. So it's not as if we need those fish. It's that we introduce those fish, and it's nice to meet them and eat them just before they go extinct, which is our approach because we're so large and proficient technologically. I could go on, and I would summarize this, uh, use the word, because I like it so much, I think it's a great concept, of the Nobel laureate, Paul Crutzen, who was one of the three scientists who elucidated the pathway of ozone depletion. He calls our age the Anthropocene. He said, instead of the geologic epochs of the Pleistocene, the Ice Age, and the Holocene, we've entered a new epoch, the Anthropocene, the human-driven geological process because now we have anthropogenic forcing at the global scale. And this, I would argue, is what the 29th day means. Now, here's the good news and the bad news. The good news and the bad news is, well, let me start with the bad news. The bad news is we are currently literally unsustainable in the sense that if we continue to do what we're doing at the level that we're doing it with the technology that we're doing it, no more economic growth, but just another 2.4 parts per million of carbon dioxide, we reach levels even within this century that are absolutely dramatic in terms of human threat. If we continue using oil at the rate we're using, we hit a wall. And while it may be possible to convert for another some decades from coal to liquids at very high cost, by the way, even that is maybe century scale. It's not millennium scale at all. So in this sense, I think, arithmetically, the argument that we're at an unsustainable point is a robust argument, as long as you define the terms properly, which is current use rate, current technologies. That's not where we need to be, but just as a definition of testing where we are. Now, the good news, (laughs) it doesn't sound good in this context, the good news is there's a lot of economic growth in the world economy left to do. I love that. That's what I've spent 25 years trying to help promote. Because there are a lot of poor people that actually would like to live better. And I don't begrudge it at all because I've really learned to like electricity motor transport, running water, and other things that I don't regard as greedy, nasty, immoral, and so on. I regard them as wonderful gifts of scientific and technological thinking. And every morning, because it just happened, uh, in, uh, I think about the same thing as I get my newspaper and I open the tap and I make a cup of coffee by pressing a button, and I heat up some, uh, some cereal, that what I've just done in that 30 seconds will take the women in the villages where we're working about seven hours to do. And I take that very seriously because, actually, I didn't want to use the next six hours, 59 minutes, and 30 seconds to do that. I wanted to do other things. And so do they. So I don't begrudge the development. In fact, I really think it's an imperative. And I think they want it, and it's going to happen or not happen at great pain in the world if it doesn't happen. Tremendous instability and conflict if it turned into a zero sum struggle. Because there's no room for you guys, sorry. I'm waiting for one of our presidential candidates to stand up and say, my platform is to cut our real consumption levels 40% because we have to make room for other people on the planet. Yeah, right. That's a winning ticket. (laughs) They haven't exactly said that recently. And they won't for a long, long time. And I hope we can find ways that they don't have to say that, frankly. Because by the time you have to say that, we're going to be in a lot of violence and war before that comes to pass. Okay. So, we got a lot of growth coming. The world was growing until this current financial crisis and rise of oil and food prices at about 5% per year. And remember, that means a doubling time of 14 years. So, think of where we are now and think, Within 20 years, we're twice that level of output with all these strains. What I can say is that because we're unsustainable, either we're going to get hit by physical shortages now, which will drive up prices, and it's true, prices will equilibrate markets. But it doesn't mean they'll equilibrate them in ways that satisfy desires and wants that people expect right now, it could be a very hard stop against the wall, as it was even in the 1970s and 80s when a great boost of energy production was stopped and stabilized at a quite, uh, at, uh, at, in an abrupt way. So we could be stopped that way, or more insidiously, we could find new, pro- new uh substitutes in the short term, carbon substitutes, non-traditional fossils, to liquids, and so on, go on for a while and degrade the ecosystem so the way we get stopped is ecological crisis a bit later on. And I don't know which of these will come first if we continue, whether we'll get stopped on economic grounds or get stopped on ecological grounds because we're pressing up against things that have market prices and things that don't have market prices, both in a very dramatic way right now. Dramatic. So, if it's literally true, and I think it is, that we're unsustainable, it means that we cannot fulfill the aggregation of normal expectations around the world, not even close with our current arrangements. That, to me, is deeply worrisome both because I think the expectations have a lot of legitimacy to them and because if it turns out that they can't be fulfilled that either one had to say to the poor country sorry you're too late we got there first there just isn't more and we're taking it you see we've got the bases in Iraq get it you're not getting that stuff That's Mr. Cheney's vision of sustainable development. (laughs) Or the vision, and that's literally the plan, we need bases for 100 years because that is the lifeline of U.S. security, that oil. That's why we're there. And it doesn't actually answer the problem that there is not enough oil for an expanding world economy doesn't come close, but that's not their concern. Their concern is our oil and the inconvenience that our oil is under their sand, (laughs) as the old slogan puts it. (laughs) So the alternative is the one that says, very popular in environmental circles, well, we've just got to slash our overconsumption and our greed. I actually think most people are not greedy. Most people are, they have their wants and desires, and it isn't insatiable greed that has brought us to where we are, but technological advance to use these resources and to use them more and to build lives and lifestyles around them. And people will defend them, maybe right or wrong if there's no other alternative, but they will. So the question that I find interesting is, is there another approach? What would be a practical pathway in between? And just let me dwell on this one rather than on uh, many of them so I can close. For energy, we need quite fundamentally a different energy system at a global scale. Turning off the lights won't do it. That's a useful thing to do, but it actually arithmetically does not solve this problem. Many things that we're being urged to do are fine. Compact fluorescent lights are an advantage probably if we can figure out how to dispose them safely. But they actually quantitatively also don't solve this problem because the things that count are massive uses of electricity, in a world where electricity provides services that are desperately sought after in all parts of the world, massive uses of energy for transport, large uses of energy for ventilation and heating of buildings, and large uses of energy in about five or six industrial processes, especially steel-making, cement, which also adds carbon dioxide through calcination, Of carbonates, petrochemical industry, plastics, and so on, which are major users of energy and also fossil feedstocks. We need scaled approaches to that. And the question that I'm asking myself and in the book is, is there a way to do that that provides enough energy at that relatively constant marginal cost? of the neoclassical growth model that obeys two constraints, the physical availability constraint and the carbon concentration constraint. How might that be done? It's not a world primarily of energy saving, although that can play a role in certain areas like long mileage automobiles and greener buildings. It does play a role. But almost any scenario also has to include a lot more energy as well if we're talking about a world economy in which the five-sixths of the world that's in the developing countries continues to experience economic growth, indeed convergent economic growth that narrows the gap with the richer countries. So what are the kinds of solutions? There are four or five that are of large scale that we could mention quickly. For example, carbon capture and sequestration at the fossil fuel-based power plants is definitely one of the top ten list of things we better look at to see whether it's feasible. Safe nuclear power is definitely on the top ten list. Long mileage automobiles that get 100 miles per gallon because they're plug-in hybrids, for example, is something close to fruition if the battery performance can be validated, that is definitely high on the list because it's big scale, it can meet a big global need. Solar power is definitely, I would say, the top of the list as of the year 2050 because insulation, incoming solar radiation, is about 6,000 times our commercial energy use. And if we can mobilize a small fraction of that effectively, in the Kalahari Desert and in the Sahara uh, and in the Mojave Desert and in the Atacama and a few other places, there's enough energy there to provide the vast majority of electricity needs, which could then be put on high-voltage direct current lines to cover continents indeed. And that's a technology that is already known but not commercial by any means. It's probably four or five times the commercial price. And there are big headaches of storage of solar power. So it can't play a role as base load right now. But there are ten categories of ways to store solar power that are being worked on. So these are examples of large-scale transformative technologies. I ask then the question to myself, how could these be brought about? And the answer is not simply by putting on carbon trading permits. Because technological change at this scale is far more complex than a patent. Because the needs are scientific, demonstration, lots of investments in public knowledge, not just private knowledge because the first plants that are gonna be built to do carbon capture and sequestration are gonna be for learning, not for patenting. They're gonna be providing general information that moves far beyond what can be captured by the first mover at $500 million a shot or a billion dollars a pop. So we're gonna need an ecology of innovation which includes universities, government laboratories, public sector funding, intellectual property, mechanisms for technology transfer to poorer countries who won't be able to pay for these technologies, certainly not at patent-protected prices, and more. There's a whole economics of innovation which will need to be understood and examined case by case, by the way, because it won't do to write an article that says, Assume Innovation in Sector I. It won't be enough because the characteristics matter of who can get what in terms of intellectual property, how it can be diffused, who's going to pay for it. The details matter a lot in these things. Now, what are we actually doing? That's what, and both of, uh, by the way, just to emphasize, take solar power, for example. That eases two vast constraints, as does nuclear potentially and that's a fuel constraint or a sheer resource constraint, as well as the carbon constraint. Others are just easing one of these constraints. We need to address two simultaneous needs, but add on at relatively low cost, plentiful, available to the world, and that we don't kill each other to achieve. Those are all parts of a constrained problem-solving approach. So, what are we doing? Well, in this country, BP just canceled its one project for testing carbon capture and sequestration in a Scottish power plant. In the United States, we just canceled our one project to build a carbon capture and sequestration demonstration plant in Illinois, a project called FutureGen. India, China, Europe and the United States have exactly zero coal capture and sequestration demonstration plants in operation right now for one of the key decision nodes for the global climate change problem. That's a profound policy mistake. That's not an us versus them problem. That's a huge common interest mistake. I had a meeting recently, again, sorry, I, I know I've got to stop, but I brought in a lot of companies in this business. They said, we can't move forward. We need regulatory approvals. We need EPA clearance. We need some co-financing with the public sector. We need some public awareness and education. We need approvals in the regulatory commission. Uh, many things are needed to open the way for this level of technological change. What are we actually doing? We're debating the end of the story. Should it be a tradable permit or a tax? That's the least interesting question in this issue. That comes at the end. It doesn't come as 90% of the debate. Those are mechanisms. But mechanisms for what? If If carbon capture doesn't work, China's not signing on to anything, thank you. Eighty percent of their power comes from coal. So we've got to figure out whether this stuff works or not. And the same is true with all these other transformative technologies. And then when we have these technologies, they will not reach the poor on a market basis. That's why 10 million children die, not because there aren't technologies that would save them, They generally cost 80 cents or a dollar a dose for the things that the children are dying of. But it's because of extreme poverty. And nobody's coming to save people that don't have a road, don't have electricity, have endemic diseases, live 500 kilometers away from a port, and are trying to grow enough food to stay alive and are failing to do so, are experiencing demographic bulge because... The fertility rate is six. There's no contraception around. Girls leave school at age 12 because they can't afford to stay in school anymore. And we're supposed to let the market solve this. Gee, that's business at the bottom of the pyramid. Why don't we go sell them some bed nets? Which is what the prevailing model was until recently. Because they can't afford to buy bed nets. That's why. So we spent more trying to advertise bed nets than we actually did to produce and distribute bed nets. And because they're tough customers, people that have no money, you have to spend a tremendous amount of time advertising. You need skits in the communities. You need to show them how wonderful it is. You need to tell them. I saw a skit in Senegal where the skit was the woman telling the doctor, this was social marketing it's called, In the skit that USAID came up with, it was the woman telling the doctor, Doctor, I can't afford to buy the bed net. My husband will beat me if I buy it. And the doctor saying, no, tell him that it's for the good of his son. And she says, oh, yes, doctor, thank you very much, and pays and he gives her the net. And that's the end of the skit. And then the women that go buy it get beaten up. Come on. This is how we view the problems of the extreme poor. DFID, unfortunately, has been opposing subsidies for fertilizer and seed because we don't want to subsidize these people. And so the poorest farmers grow one ton per hectare rather than four tons per hectare if they could get the basic inputs. Now we're scrambling to ship food aid at about ten times the cost of the improved inputs, but we don't want to subsidize. So we have a lot of, and now they're changing, by the way, just so I'm not misunderstood by anybody in DFID here. After a long fight, DFID said, okay, we'll help Malawi to do this, but for a three-year period. And they're saying even though Malawi doubled its food production in the last three harvests in a row by helping its poorest farmers get these technologies, with subsidy. We don't think we'll go on after three years because, you know, it might not be sustainable and so forth. Okay. My point is, if we're looking for technologies to solve things, think about the whole chain, RDD&D, research, development, demonstration, and diffusion. Think about where these technologies need to cover. The poor, the commons, Think about the basic science, the public goods aspects, the regulatory aspects, the public acceptance aspects. Think, therefore, about the whole ecology of technological change. Understand what markets can do, what markets won't do. Understand what corrective pricing is useful for and its limits. Understanding that we got a package deal and we're in the 29th day. That's what the book is about. Finally, Whenever I say these things, uh, I get slammed. We're never going to agree to that. Or, Mr. Sachs, you believe in international cooperation as if that's from another planet or simply impossible. And I believe that we are in a self-fulfilling funk, ladies and gentlemen. Partly the issues are complicated, they really are, and we don't approach them in pragmatic ways. We're a bit stuck on blame rather than on solutions. And maybe George Bush has done, it's a job more effective than I could ever believe to prove the incompetence of government and the futility of international cooperation. But I actually... But I actually do not believe that he is really the standard for either uh, and sets the levels of what's achievable. So I want to close by what I regard as an extraordinarily pertinent and powerful model for us, an event, a time, that to me is what is the essence of generational problem solving. It's one of the most important moments of history in my view. It's the period from the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis to John Kennedy's assassination. Because it's the moment when we actually signed an agreement to step back from annihilation with the Soviet Union, the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. And it's worth understanding that things looked pretty hopeless and dire at that point. And that Many Americans, maybe most, believe that war with the Soviet Union was inevitable. After all, they're treacherous. They're out to destroy us. There's no way we can cooperate. And John Kennedy, backed and informed strongly, by the way, by Harold Macmillan, who played a huge role in this, as Kennedy's kind of senior avuncular guide and the spirit in this, said we've got to try to find an agreement. And Kennedy told the American people, don't give up hope because these are solvable problems. And he gave a speech, which I regard as the finest of modern history. It's actually built on Churchill's sinews of war speech of 1946, which was also a remarkable speech, wrongly remembered by many, as a speech about the Iron Curtain, but not about Churchill's view that it would be possible to make peace with the Soviet Union, which was his real message at the time. Not that we were in for implacable conflict, but that there was still, though a closing opportunity, to make peace. And Kennedy said the following in his American University commencement address, and I want to quote it, I quote it at length in, in my book, and I'd like to just quote a relevant part because to me it's the essence for us, and it has a couple things I want you to remember. He said, first, let us analyze our attitude toward peace itself. Too many of us think it impossible. Too many think it unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the view that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces that we cannot control. We need not accept that view." Our problems are man-made, and therefore can be solved by man. And man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. I am not referring to the absolute infinite concept of universal peace and goodwill, of which some fantasies and fanatics dream. I do not deny the value of hopes and dreams, but we merely invite incredulity and discouragement by making that our only and immediate aim. Let us focus instead on a more practical, more attainable peace, based not on a revolution in human nature, but on an evolution in human institutions. On a series of concrete actions and effective agreements, which are in the interest of all concerned. There is no single simple key to this peace, no grand or magic formula to be adopted by one or two powers. Genuine peace is the product of many nations, the sum of many acts. It must be dynamic, not static, changing to meet the conditions and challenges of each generation. So let us not be blind to our differences, but let us also direct attention to our common interests and to the means by which those differences can be resolved. And if we cannot end now our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air, We all cherish our children's future, and we are all mortal. Thank you very much.
0: I will uh, thank you at greater length in a moment, but I want to take, uh, make sure we have the, that we can use the time available now, which is a little pressured, to get as many of you as possible to raise questions. I'll take them in clusters of five or so, so the audience gets an opportunity to speak. I want your questions to be short, tight, basically a question is something that will be answered with a yes or a no.
1: At least multiple choice. Stat- statements ex- statements
0: are excluded. Okay, so we'll take four or five questions to begin with, and then you'll have just a couple of minutes at the most to respond to them (laughs) because we want another round of questions. That's the rules. That's great. I'm setting them. Right. Short questions only. On the ground floor, any hands? Yes, gentlemen.
1: Uh, Mr. Sachs, what do you think is the the role of the the major uh,
0: major institutions like IMF and World Bank in this? Brilliant question. (laughs) I'm referring to the shortness, not the question. Gentlemen over there. Keep going, keep going. Just behind you now to your right. Thank you. Actually, a follow-up to that really uh, inspirational stuff, but how do we achieve it? Yeah, that's a good question. Yes, at the back. Yes, the the, the the lady in the middle there, just here, just right in the the middle of the room. Yeah, put your hand up. Put your hand up, then Michael will come to you straight away.
1: Don't you think that carbon capture and storage doesn't address the problem of behavioral change that people still will keep on emitting and would not really solve the problem? Say it one more time, sorry. Say it again. We we Uh, didn't hear Carbon
0: capture and storage doesn't really solve the behavioral Carbon
1: capture and storage, Yeah. yeah. Back
0: with his piece of paper. Yeah, you. Briefly. <laughs> I've heard him before, you see. <laughs> oh, sir, just one line question.
1: Can we solve the problems of the world by proposing policies which are slammed?
0: Yeah, general, yeah the back. Okay, we might as well keep it back. Yeah. We'll go.
1: Yeah. Do you think we can lift people out of poverty just by transferring technology and... We're... Yes. Just by transferring technology and ignoring the political dimension of poverty. Okay, Jim.
0: We'll come back. Um, thank you for your exemplary shortness and questions. Uh, I think you have a lesson to learn, do you? Keep them short. Uh,
1: not much. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Yes. I hope you were paying attention. (laughs) Very quickly, uh, the IMF has a continuing role on financial stability, but not on running Africa. The World Bank uh, needs to do vastly better, but it is an important institution that has been poorly pushed by the U.S. in the last two decades. Uh, How do we achieve these goals? By putting a practical set of steps forward that are in the interests of all concerned. It is defining the practicality of what to do, rather than saying how horrendous the problem is. So if you're fighting malaria, there are a set of algorithmic steps that can make a difference. If you're fighting measles, you can immunize children and UNICEF has succeeded in getting measles down 91%. If you're working on uh, the uh, sustainable energy technologies, the first step, I believe, that is essential is to build a number of demonstration plants on key technologies that are waiting for testing and to vastly increase the amount of funding going for basic uh, energy science. We're funding energy science at $3 billion per year right now which is 36 in the U.S., which is 36 hours of Pentagon spending. Uh, It it doesn't make sense how little we're putting towards this problem. CCS doesn't solve the real problem. Well, it depends what the real problem is. The real problem that will run out of fossil fuels, that will be solved by rising prices. Uh, There is no other intrinsic problem with fossil fuels, in my view. It's not immoral to use them. They just happen to create carbon dioxide. Uh, And uh, if we can stop that part of it, I really want to use these fossil fuels. But I also want to make sure we're accelerating our investment in the handoff to solar and to other truly sustainable technologies. Uh, Can we solve the problems of the world without address? – I'm sorry. Can we solve the problems of the world I have – uh, what was the last phrase? No, no, there was one about uh, can poverty be ended by technology, but the, the one just preceding that, sorry. Oh, can, if the policies are slammed, I know I didn't write that down. Um, I've had in my uh, own career several major episodes where things have been slammed for 10 years and then accept it as inevitable. So I don't take the slamming as very consequential. Uh, I think it's a matter of time. If the idea is good, if the idea is bad, it can get slammed forever. But uh, debt cancellation was slammed till it became inevitable. Treating people for AIDS was slammed until it became a cause of the G8. Giving away anti-malaria bed nets was absolutely slammed until it became universal policy prescription. Yeah. So... I'm not too concerned about, slant, about uh, what's accepted and what isn't right now. I'm more concerned about the accuracy. Is it in the common interest of all concerned? Is it a good diagnosis? I really think that's the key. Or is it a dumb idea? And that's, that's very important. Now, can poverty be ended by technology? Largely, yes, uh, at a low level to get people to a higher level level of being so that their higher level of material well-being so that they're not struggling for survival. That will tremendously improve politics. Poor people who are desperately hungry are almost inherently either manipulated dr- dramatically, suffer so they can't organize, or are uh, in engaged in conflict with their neighbors. And... On the other hand, doubling or tripling food production, which is a kind of technological step, is, uh, a fee- is feasible and empowers poor people in the most dramatic way. This can't happen everywhere. There are places that are so thuggish that this is not right. And I would say Mr. Mugabe's late-stage Zimbabwe is an example of that. I'm not talking about places that are dramatically uh, so uh, profoundly uh, pathological in a political sense because those places obviously have as their first problem politics. But for most of the poorest of the poor, that's not the first problem. It is a problem that I believe is often secondary to extreme poverty, not primary to extreme poverty, if I could put it in medical terms.
0: Let's take another round. Yeah, Robert Wade. Here's your mic. What are your main main agreements and your main disagreements with the Stern report and the body of work that follows in that same current, such as the report just launched yesterday at LSE by Nick Stern and a set of panelists, which, for example, placed the whole thrust of dealing with climate change on reducing emissions – as distinct from reducing carbon concentrations that are already in the atmosphere. What are your main disagreements and agreements?
1: On a slightly different subject, um, elaborating on the uh, word crowded in your uh, title, what's your position on population control measures and the role of governments in that?
0: When you were quoting uh, Kennedy's speech and you're talking about um, institutional evolution, which you seem to think is very important, it, it seems like we're talking on different levels here. Because in that, we're talking about bilateral cooperation about something that was global, but in this instance, we're talking about something that is so encompassing global that it will be the amount of cooperation is is you know is profound. And like Another say, scale,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: And how would you explain that in evolutionary terms when it almost seems revolutionary in scale? Yes, lady in the middle.
1: Straightforward question. Why doesn't um, – what do you think about the fact that um, – oh, here. Good What do you think about the fact that LSE um, – right now all of the um, electricity on the main campus is from 100% renewable sources, but they're not willing to switch to – Renewable energy um, in the other halls of res- in the halls of residence and other buildings. Um, mm. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Generally, yes. Yeah. Okay, I think I'm going to have to ask one of the questions you didn't want to hear. I thought some
1: where. Yes. Okay. Some references to uh, Jared Diamond's collapse and uh, zero-sum game. I know it's often presented by kind of ecologists as being like a raw lack of material resources that's facing it. And I wonder, do you actually think there's enough um, material resources for the entire globe to live what the, live in a first world standard? Yeah.
0: We'll lady at the back.
1: Um, do you think that market forces uh, will, in the end, prevent deforestation, say in regions like the Amazon, where there are a lot of pressures in the other way at the moment? Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. This gentleman in the middle. Yeah. You will handle. Professor, what recommendations would you uh,
1: make to African leaders to help in reducing or eliminating poverty in their countries? Yeah. Thank you.
0: Hello. I'm interested in um, the corporation's role in. And whether you think there are practical tools today, like the WBCSD tool that has been launched on the development impact. Yeah, I think that's about it. But let me let me just let me just throw in one other thought for you to to hit. Um, you you have stressed the urgency of many of these collective problems, which I think everyone here would uh, 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 share and uh, an emphasis which we understand. But you've also stressed a number of huge gaps. There's a huge technology gap for solving many of these problems. Carbon um, capture and sequestration is one of them. The technology, it's talked a lot about in science, but the technology just isn't there yet. We're a long way, actually, from having viable tested models of this technology. Secondly, there's also, of course, a political gap because there are large parts of the world that do not yet share your conception of what the problems are. You see that very clearly in international fora where many developing countries and Asian countries will say, that this agenda is still a Western agenda that doesn't give adequate priority to developmental issues and so on and so forth. You've heard this many times, no doubt. And I just wonder whether there's also one other problem which goes to the heart of the the politics of it, which you haven't had time, of course, to talk very much about. And that is the 1945 institutions were designed for a very different world order. Those institutions are not just creaking, but they've been made much more vulnerable by the war on terror, by the Bush-Blair axis in so many ways. And so there's a question. Where is the political leadership going to emerge from, and what generation of leaders will be able to take such a vision and make it work on a collaborative basis? And underlying that, one final structural thought. (laughs) Democracies serve citizens. Democracies are inherently particularistic. Your book is about finding common ground across borders. Democracy often doesn't deliver that. And that is what we champion, democracy and more of it. But if it doesn't create the momentum to cross-border collaboration in many respects, it also creates a great structural challenge. Thank you.
1: Okay, very quickly. Seatbelts on. Um, Stern report I agree with. Uh, I haven't read yesterday's report, but the Stern report did not lay out the critical path for solutions. It laid out the problems and the likely costs and benefits in an accurate way, but it did not talk about the institutional pathway to solve the problem. Europe has focused too much on trading trading systems and not enough on the ecology of technology to get this right so far. And so there's a lot of uh, focus on who's going to limit what, at what proportion, at what rate, and how do we get binding agreements of developing countries. And I think it puts the thing upside down. Uh, It also comes to this question about uh, the David's asked about the political gap, large areas that don't share the concern. I don't – I think if you phrase the problem correctly – That's not right. If you phrase the problem in the following way, we would like to have a world in which poor countries can continue to grow rapidly, have the energy needs met, and do this in a manner which reduces emissions. And we need to work together to ensure that both the growth agenda and the emissions agenda are mutually respected and promoted. This is in the interest of all concerned you would get strong endorsement from all parts of the world. It's a matter of how we framed the question. We have not framed the question in a way that really reflects the common interests. And I have no doubt, I spent a lot of time talking to leaders all over the world on this, that if it's framed appropriately, China and India and poor countries are scared to death of climate change. They also feel that they're not the ones to bear the brunt of stopping it. So they are ready to cooperate but only in a context which acknowledges their needs. And I share that view with them. So I don't think we have the critical path yet worked out. And there's not even a zero draft document circulating for what kind of agreement could close the next protocol. Not even a zero draft by anybody. This is really where the world is right now. No operational views that actually get down to what to do Next. So what to do, you know, I've I've said, let's build some demonstration plants. The fact that there are technology gaps means the following. Invest in closing those gaps. Maybe we're going to need 10 or 20 years to do it, but start now. At the same time, do things that can be done now. Only force commitments on the basis of what we know, not on the basis of blind hopes where you tell a country, Sure, something's going to come up, so accept a strong constraint that i don 't think works also. So in my view we 've got to make investments in critical paths to get this right. On population who has me on population Somebody, Yes uh, I would like to see the world take this issue seriously and to try to stabilize the world 's population through voluntary means at about eight billion rather than a current trajectory which will exceed $9 by mid-century. What are the steps of population control? They are child survival, which is critical and doesn't exist in the poor countries, girls staying through secondary school, which is critical and doesn't exist, access to contraception and family planning services, normative support for population, voluntary fertility reduction, and empowerment of women to make choices in this. Those are critical steps. Many countries have succeeded in this, many countries with rapid, voluntary-based transitions. And I believe I'm dealing with a lot of African countries where fertility rates remain six or higher, where those things are not in place, but could be put in place, and where national leadership wants to get the population growth under control because it's absolutely unmanageable to have a generation doubling of populations now, which is what six implies. So I think this is feasible, important, but we don't say the words contraception and family planning anymore in the United States because we became a fundamentalist country in the last few years. And we stopped our funding of the UN Population Fund and so forth. And thank God, at least we have a constitution. We'll have a new president by noon on January 20th, 2009. (laughs) In terms of the institutional needs to uh, change things, we actually have rudiments of these institutions right now. We have a framework convention on climate change. We actually have a treaty, which is quite a nice treaty, the UNFCCC. We have the Millennium Development Goals, which provide a framework that I think is quite important because it's quantitative and it's shared objectives. We have a Convention on Biological Diversity, Convention to Combat Desertification. We have the UN Law of the Sea and many other things. And those actually are building blocks for what needs to be done. But then define the steps practically because policymakers also want to know, so what do you want me to do actually and we rarely define it in those terms. I've sat at the side of finance ministers for more than 20 years now. People come in and tell them how important this or that is. And then they say, well, what do you want me to do? And the answer is, oh, it's so important. Take it seriously. And then they say, well, what do you want me to do? And they say, we want you to mainstream it. You say, yeah, but what do you want me to do? Okay, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Because these are busy, overwhelmed people in busy, overwhelmed systems. And they need pathways. What do you want me to do next year? Thank you. What should be in the budget? How much does it cost? What's the delivery mechanism? And we need to spend more time in our disciplines defining those critical pathways than the theories. There's nothing wrong with academics doing that stuff. That's important, it seems to me. And I wish we did it. Now, LSE lighting. (laughs) I don't know all the details. I do know that at the Earth Institute, they turned down the temperature in February and March to reduce our carbon footprint. People were uncomfortable, and they were cold. I think it's absurd because it's a feel-bad approach. And I'm not looking for feel good or feel bad, I'm looking for scalable approaches to solve this problem. The issue is not the lighting, the issue is what is the source of power plants that are delivering the electricity in the UK. That's the issue. So if you don't have that coal capture, uh, the the, uh, carbon capture and sequestration coal plant tried out in uh, in, uh, Scotland, this country is failing to take the first step to find out what to do. If Shell walks away from the wind power, there's something seriously wrong. Those are the things that count. And the symbolism, its I don't want to dismiss the value of that. I do not deny the value of hopes and dreams. But we merely invite incredulity and discouragement by focusing on the feel-good things or the local things we need to do arithmetic, 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 arithmetic. It's the thing that Washington can't do at all, even with spreadsheets, for God's sake. <laughs> you don't even actually know how, need to know how to do, to, do, to do arithmetic anymore. But they refuse to do it. It's a fundamental unseriousness that we need to address. There's nothing which compels us to such unseriousness. That's not an intrinsic feature of our age. There are lots of serious institutions, especially when there's money involved, that do things extremely well. But here there's only public interest. We're talking about things where there's not money at the end of the chain, just the public well-being. Then those things fall apart. They don't have to fall apart, though. We can actually make those systems work. I am struck by the fact that in the eight years... That the Bush administration could not build one coal-fired power plant to test carbon capture. We put a man on the moon and brought him back safely to Earth in the 1960s. In John Kennedy's era. NASA did that, and yet we can't build one power plant? To have one damn pipeline to pump stuff underground to see whether it'll stay and how much it will cost? That's pathetic. That's not intrinsic to politics. That's an unseriousness of our time that we can remedy, actually, by understanding how important these issues are. Do we have enough material resources to do this? My guess is yes, because the most limiting resources that we face are energy resources, fresh water, land, rather than specific ores and minerals. And we do face some limits on those, but the Earth's crust is filled with all sorts of stuff, and we've been quite good for a long, long time at finding and improving our capacity to mine, even very small particles into large amounts. And I think that that's likely to be the case. So when I look at water, land, ecosystems, which I believe to be profoundly threatened, there I think it is organizational matters, incentive issues, and technology issues, which are the binding limits. And the answer is, if solar power doesn't work and carbon capture and sequestration doesn't work, the answer is no. So, but if we have these backstops, I believe the answer is yes for a lot of these things and and for basically the critical areas of need. Substitution of specific commodities can play a very large role if given a horizon of 10, 20, or 30 years but we have some basic large categories that need to be addressed. Will market forces prevent deforestation? not Who asked the question? Not, not by themselves in the sense that you could clear-cut the Amazon commercially profitably. So it's not, it's not that if we just valued certain things that you take literally to the bank, we'll solve this problem because if you want to take things to the bank, clear-cut a lot of the forests and sell palm oil. It's very profitable, and it's going to be for a long time. You'll do away with millions of species. So the values that we're going to have to impart are something else. They're going to have to say there are both instrumental and other values to biodiversity that we want per se, because we don't actually want to wreck the planet for us and for the next 30 years and then really have irreversibly led to many many kinds of of, of profound wreckage that could never be recovered but that's not a commercial choice now can you use market type instruments to to fend off some of this probably yes if you can outcompete palm oil with Various kinds of uh, incentives, but often you won't be able to. So there's going to have to be a limit that says no more. Valuable biota and fauna live there, and we're stopping there, and we'll outcompete palm oil by massive uh, research on on uh, um, solar power and alternatives that don't require destroying vast numbers of species. But that's going to have to be a more conscious choice than either self-organization of the market or even some simple market tricks, which could play a role but won't be enough to play a role. On African poverty, four areas of critical investment, agriculture, health, education, and infrastructure, infrastructure being roads, power, uh, safe water, and connectivity. These are public investments, by and large, that are complementary to private investments. So my policy message is the complementarity of public investment and the market. And when you can't afford the public investments because you're too poor, that's where a poverty trap comes from. You can't do the things you know you need to do because you can't afford to do them, even though you know you need to do them. That's the essence of a poverty trap. And then you need outside help to do them, and that's why I believe in aid. It's not aid because I love to hand out money. It's not aid because I trust other people. It's not aid because I believe in leveling of income or redistribution. One could argue about those things. I happen not to believe in any of that. It's aid because I think we need targeted investments in certain areas to end certain problems that are massive for the poor and very serious for us as well. And if this were 10% of our income, this would be about morals. But because it's less than 1% of our income, it's about self-interest. So I don't even want to go to morals except to say if you believe in it morally, because in Matthew 25, the gospel says, he who feeds the least of me feeds me. Wonderful. And not in any way to say that could be the most powerful motive in the world. And I wouldn't look away from it for an instant. But we don't even need to reach that for those people who don't read Matthew 25. Because other people care about Al-Qaeda running around Somalia. And other people care about disease burdens crossing borders. And Europe cares about mass unwanted migration and many, many other things. And since it's such a small amount of money, we're idiots not to do this. In our self-interest, that's all I'm talking about. It's in the interest of all concerned to make those practical investments, because it's so cheap. Economists, by the way, institutionally, they think I cheat, basically. Because the first thing you learn in economics is a budget constraint. And there goes Sachs. He doesn't even believe in budget constraints. Because the game of development economics is how do you find that incredibly narrow pathway where people that have no money are able to get this thing done because that's the game of development economics. But we have no resource constraint when you look a little bit bigger. we got a $70 trillion economy. We spend $2 billion a day on the Pentagon, and we need $1.5 billion for five years of bed net coverage. So what are we doing wasting our time trying to figure out how to sell bed nets? It's an absurdity to waste our time thinking that way. Just let the Pentagon take next Thursday off. Okay. Finally. Finally, finally. Yeah, but you said that during the
0: lecture, you said finally, and then you said by by way of a conclusion, and then you said in summary.
1: (laughs) I want to end by saying corporations are businesses. They're not philanthropies. They're not charities. So that what they can do is within the limit of business organizations. They can agree to provide technologies at cost, for example, rather than at patent-protected prices. They can segment markets. They can do some small-scale demonstration things that can have huge effect by showing how their technologies work. But it's not the evil of companies that's at stake. Companies are private sector entities. It's the rules in which they operate and the rules we set for ourselves for public investment that are far more important than bashing a company. Of course, companies cheat, they steal, they destroy the environment, and they ought to be taken to, to court or to jail for that kind of behavior. But within the law, they ought to make money, basically. But within making money, there are still things they can do that are socially responsible and can play a big role, mainly through modest donation programs that don't break the budget, by cost-zero-profit rules to get technologies out to poor people in partnership with the public sector. So I'm a big believer in public-private partnerships as the essence of what companies can do, keeping their corporate model intact. Finally, it's your question. Democracies democracies serve constituencies, but it is in the interest of their constituencies to solve these problems. That's why we can hold on to our democracies and solve the problems at the same time. Three things before we
0: wrap up. One, Eric Hobsbawm was here some weeks ago, and he said in a wise reflection. Who would have thought that human beings would have survived the 20th century? So why do we think that they won't survive the 21st century? And I think we've had here, there are at least two things here which are profoundly helpful in in, in taking that positive, optimistic uh, uh, sense forward. I mean, one is I want to thank you for your incredibly engaging and passionate lecture. I mean, that kind of passion really matters, and there are very few speakers who come here who engage with us in this particular way, and I I think we all appreciate it enormously. And the second thing I want to say is that if you haven't read this book, it is deeply optimistic, but also very practical, and that's something you've been saying over and over again, and I would also emphasize that practicality, that the optimism and the practicality work well together and make this package of ideas rather special. So, if you haven't bought the book, it's available out there. And he is available in here to to sign it. Thank you.